0: Just before I begin this morning, um, three things briefly. One, I've, I'm told that the Gerald's are with us this morning. Here they are. <laughs> um, wonderful to see you. We love you. We miss you. And um, try to make this a habit, if you would, please. At least once a quarter. Okay. Number two, last week we had a visit from a young couple who just moved here from Uh, Wisconsin and we sought to befriend them and we offered if there's any way we can help you get adjusted and within two days Matt Lemke called and said my wife is very sick and now she's in the hospital and um, two of our ladies for sure have ministered to her already but if any of you ladies might be willing to help starting tomorrow to care for their little daughter Adelaide um, she may be home, Mom, Melissa may be home from the hospital by tomorrow. If that's the case, you would watch and help with Adelaide there. If she doesn't come home, you're welcome to take this 11-month-old daughter to your home. And finally, as Pastor Sam prayed this morning, uh, he made mention of the name the exalted, majestic name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wasn't going to read this, but I'm just going to read this for you because it's short and I think it's very moving. It comes from the Forgotten Spurgeon and it's about a sermon that he once preached at Exeter Hall when he was only 25 years old. The title of the sermon was The Eternal Name. And in the course of the sermon, he depicts what would become of the world if the name of Jesus could be removed from it. And unable to restrain his own feelings, he exclaimed, I would have no wish to be here without my Lord. And if the gospel be not true, I should bless God to annihilate me this instant. For I would not care to live if you could destroy the name of Jesus Christ. Many years later, Mrs. Spurgeon had not forgotten this sermon. And she describes its close when Spurgeon's voice was almost breaking in physical exhaustion in the following words. This is Mrs. Spurgeon. I remember with strange vividness at this long distance of time, the Sunday evening when he preached from the text His name shall endure forever. It was a subject in which he reveled. It was his chief delight to exalt his glorious Savior. And he seemed in that discourse, to be pouring out his very soul and life in homage and adoration before his gracious King. But I really thought that he would have died there. In the face of all those people, at the end of the sermon, he made a mighty effort to recover his voice, but utterance well-nigh failed. And only in broken accents could the pathetic oration be heard. Let my name perish, but let Christ's name last forever. Jesus! 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 Crown Him Lord of all. You will not hear me say anything else. These are my last words in Exeter Hall for this time. Jesus! 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 Crown Him Lord of all. And then he fell back, almost fainting, in the chair behind him. May God grant to all of us such a love for the person in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we embark upon a study of one of the Gospels dedicated to tell us and teach us about this precious Savior And I would ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 1. Again, if you should need a pew Bible, for those who may not have a Bible, you may find Mark 1 on page 836. Now the title of this series, as you have perhaps observed from your bulletin, is The Gospel According to Mark, a Docudrama, of Christ our Ransom. A docudrama is simply a dramatic retelling of facts. And I'm going to argue that the Gospel of Mark is in a unique and peculiar way dramatic. And I want to emphasize the word ransom because I have chosen Chapter 10 and verse 45 as the key verse, because in nowhere else in this gospel does Jesus make more clear why He came. He came not to be served, literally to be deaconed, but to serve, to deacon. Jesus is the ultimate deacon, capital D. He came not to be deaconed, but to and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is the release of a person in return for a payment. Now let me just make a few limited words of introduction, give them to you, which in a way I trust will be helpful as we think about the Gospel of Mark as a whole. I want to say something about Mark himself. I want to say a little something about the style of this particular gospel, the nature of it. And I want to say something about how Mark himself opens up this gospel. But first, a word about Mark. Mark's full name was John Mark. We read of him eight times in the New Testament. He was the son of a godly woman by the name of Mary who apparently was somewhat well-to-do because the disciples often met in her home. In fact, on the night that Peter was released from prison, and you remember there was a prayer meeting taking place and that's why he was released, they were in the home of Mary. And Acts chapter 12 and verse 12 tells us that she had a son by the name of John Mark. As a young man... John Mark was taken by Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he actually attended their first missionary journey, and some of you know that before the journey was over, for reasons we don't understand, he departed, he withdrew from Paul and Barnabas, and he went back to Jerusalem. And so when it came time to go on the second journey, Barnabas wanted John Mark to go again, and by the way, uh, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Paul said, no, no, we're not taking him. Apparently, Paul believed that there was sin, some deficiency in character on the part of John Mark, and he didn't believe it would be wise to take him. He didn't think he was warranted to travel on this mission trip. And a very sharp dissension developed between Paul and Barnabas. And the end result is that they parted. And Paul took Silas on the second journey. And Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. And we don't hear about John Mark for a long time. But here's the good news. The good news is that John Mark and Paul get back together. And we find John Mark with Paul in Colossians. And then later, just before Paul is going to give up his own life, the ultimate sacrifice, by probably being decapitated, he writes Timothy, and he says, Timothy, please send John Mark to me, for he is profitable to me. And we read once more about John Mark from the Apostle Peter. Peter makes reference to him and calls him his son his son who was presently living in what Peter called Babylon, which surely meant the city of Rome. That's who the author is, John Mark. He became an assistant to the Apostle Peter. And early ancient history tells us again and again that Mark was asked by the Roman Christians to record everything he heard Peter preach because they so... Profited from Peter's ministry as an apostle. And because he was Peter's assistant, apparently, he was asked to record. And this request has been recorded in much of ancient history, especially by the early fathers. Um, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius, maybe you've heard of some of their names. They were the early church fathers. And by the way, if you want to study the early church fathers, that's called patristics. That's your word for the day, (laughs) patristics. Some men have their Ph.D. in patristics. So there is historical evidence that John Mark was very close to the Apostle Peter and that the Apostle Peter's influence permeates this particular gospel. In fact, you can almost see and feel the personality of the Apostle Peter in this Particular gospel. And I'm just going to tell you one more sort of interesting thing. I will not have you turn there, but listen to these strange words toward the end of Mark's gospel. He says, And this is when Jesus was being arrested in the garden. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Apparently, he heard what was happening and just grabbed some clothing and covered himself quickly. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many scholars believe that that was actually Mark's signature and that Mark, John Mark was the man, the young man, who followed Jesus to the garden. Now, I want to say a word about Mark's style. I've already called this a docudrama, and I've explained what I mean by that. This is the shortest of the four Gospels. It can be read in about an hour, and if you ever have the time, I suggest that you listen to Max McLean recite the entirety of Mark's Gospel in a very helpful, interpretive, and dramatic way. It's overwhelming. I confess to you that in watching it, Jonathan gave me this and another uh, such videotape uh, DVD, and I... I sat alone with tears streaming down my face at hearing nothing but the gospel of Mark being quoted verbatim. It's not a long gospel. It's short on teaching. It doesn't record nearly as much of the instruction of, of our Savior. Only four parables. Only two major sections of teaching. But it's long on miracles. Mark, in this short book, records no less than 18 miracles. It's action-packed. It has brief descriptions. It's vivid. It's lively. It's fast-paced. It's graphic. It's energetic. It's direct. It's engaging. That's why I'm calling this a docudrama on the on Christ's ransom of His people. Now, finally, just a word about how He opens His gospel. And here I would like you to imagine us asking Mark this question Mark how do you think your introduction to the good news to the gospel about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ how do you think it differs from the introductions of your friends Matthew and Luke and John and I believe that Mark would respond something like this he would say well Unlike my friend Matthew, who wrote his gospel primarily for the Jews in order to demonstrate that Jesus was the son of David, the expected Messiah, who actually began with the story of Christ's birth and tells about Bethlehem and about the flight to Egypt. And unlike my friend Luke, who wrote his account, especially for Theophilus, and told of the birth of John the Baptist and of Gabriel visiting Mary to tell of the supernatural birth that she would soon give, and unlike Luke who told about the shepherds and the wise men and about Mary visiting with Elizabeth, and unlike my friend John who began his gospel way back, he didn't just go back to the physical birth of Jesus He didn't just go back to the prophets. He didn't even just go back to Genesis 3 where we have the first announcement of the Messiah crushing the head of Satan. No, He goes all the way up to heaven into eternity itself and He begins His Gospel with these words, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word..." became flesh no I didn't start where my friends started by the direction of the Holy Spirit I did not begin with the narrative of the birth of Jesus and talk about his parents but I went immediately to the public ministry of Christ well almost so close that I actually began my gospel with John the Baptist announcing the soon-to-come appearance of Jesus Christ. I began my gospel by telling about the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the herald, the preparer for the king. Now, if I could just indulge your imagination for one more moment, I want you congregation, brothers and sisters, to imagine with me A little further as I build on this idea of a docudrama. And I want us to imagine for just a moment that we are now seated in a theater. Music is playing. And after several moments, the lights go down. And there is complete silence. And the music stops playing. And then the silence is broken by a narrator, by the name of Mark, who speaks these words. We've heard them once this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. And there's silence, and the curtains open. And suddenly, on the screen, this action movie takes us to a river scene. In the plain of Jordan. And we see there a gaunt, attention commanding figure. And we hear him preaching. And we watch him baptizing. He's obviously a prophet. He obviously lives in the wilderness. He's not weird. He's not bizarre. He's not unclean. He's rugged. He's dressed in a coat made of camel's hair. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist. He eats locusts and wild honey. And as we watch him moving and listen to him speaking, we see large crowds, multitudes gathered around him. And we hear him crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent of your sins. You will not have remission of sins unless you repent. The Messiah is about to come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Judgment is coming. And he looks at some of his hearers and he says, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he tells some who would be baptized carelessly and quickly and unthinkingly, I will not baptize you until your life demonstrates that you are genuinely repentant of your sins. And some of them say, What will that look like? And he says, if you're a prosperous, wealthy person, it means that you'll quit being a materialist. And you will share of your goods with the poor. If you're a tax collector, it means you're going to quit taking money that does not belong to you. If you're a soldier, it means you're not going to extort money. And you will be content with your wages. Repent! And those who gave... Credible evidence of being genuinely broken for their sins went down into the river Jordan, and John baptized them. And it's called a baptism of repentance. Not because the baptism caused them to repent, but because the repentance caused them to say, I want to symbolize that I need to be cleansed, that I am making a break with sin, that I'm done with this wickedness, and I want to be ready for the King. Whose kingdom is at hand. That's what we see on the screen. And it's an amazing scene. But now, what I want us to do is let the curtains close. And I want us to go to the script of this docudrama. And that's why I've turned you to Matthew or to Mark chapter 1. So let's just examine the script itself. Now, My assignment today is to open up the first 13 verses. By the way, our plan is to preach through the Gospel of Mark in 26 sermons. We don't want to wear you out, but neither do we want to fly over so quickly that you hardly remember anything about the Gospel. Two sermons from Mark chapter 1, the first, covers verses 1 through 13. Now, if you have little dividing headlines in your translation, you will probably notice that there are three things found in verses 1 through 13. In my particular translation, the first says, John the Baptist prepares the way, verses 1 through 8. The second headline over verse 9 says the baptism of Jesus. The third headline, over verses 12 and 13, says the temptation of Jesus. And one of the reasons I stopped there this morning is because, in fact, when we come to verse 14 next week, we will see that he has moved to a different region. He has moved out of Judea into Galilee. And I will try to remember to tell you again next week that between verse 13 and verse 14, probably a whole year transpires. And we have much of what transpired recorded in John's Gospel. Remember, Mark is fast moving. Mark is an action movie. Mark is a photo album with snapshots that you go through very quickly. In fact, as I went through the entire Gospel this week, just as a matter of curiosity, I found that there were no less than 84 separate incidences recorded 84 and Mark's favorite word is a Greek word which is translated immediately euthus again and again and again you find him quickly moving out of one scene into another but this morning I want us to look at these three things John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah the baptism of Jesus Very interesting. Why would a sinless, pure human being joined to divine nature ever want or feel the need to be baptized? And thirdly, I want us to see this very brief account of our Savior's temptation in the wilderness. Now, I've I've sort of portrayed for you already verses 1 through 8. You have a feel for what was going on. But let's look just a little more carefully at verses 4 through 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins for those who do not repent. And I can say there is no forgiveness of sins for those who do not repent and believe the gospel. And then John or Mark tells us that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. There's a wonderful illustration of how all doesn't always mean all. Of course, not every single human being in Judea and Jerusalem was there. But it means there was a massive interest and attendance upon John. And then sort of parenthetically, Mark wants to tell us what John was like and how prophetic he was in his appearance. That is to say, he he looks like the prophets of old, especially he looks like Elijah. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus said that John is the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi. What did he look like? Well, we're told that he was clothed in camel's hair, he wore a leather belt, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. I've been thinking about that quite a bit this week. Someday we'll see John. I want to ask him, because I don't intend to find out. What did the locusts taste like? You really liked them, or was it just survival food? I think John would say they were good. And people all over the world eat various kinds of insects. And we say, ooh, that's stupid. And we eat snails slimy snails and we think they're good because we call them some french name like escargot people eat weird stuff locusts if you take the wings off i'm told are tasty they're crispy they're crunchy makes you want one right now doesn't it i can tell i know some of you want one you can fry them you can dry them you can cook them put some salt on them probably delicious Some people think he put the honey on to overcome the power of the taste. Now, this was decent food. It was nutritious. But John was not a a man who lived in luxury. He was not called to that. And and in one place, Jesus says to his ears, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out there to see a reed blowing in the wind? Did you go out there to see a man in nice clothing? No, 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 that's not what God called this man to be. He was an ascetic he was a prophet of God. He lived in the wilderness. He preached fearlessly. He's the greatest man that has ever been born of a woman, said our Savior. And so here is John preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then notice a verse 7, because here's where the Gospel comes in. Did John just preach repentance? No! And I'm going to read this for you and I'll save you the effort because I, I just don't want you to have to turn all over the place today. Listen to this. This is what the Apostle Paul says about John's preaching. John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Did you hear what Paul said about John? He said, yeah, he preached repentance. He also preached faith. Turn from your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John, in preaching repentance as an essential component to obtaining forgiveness from God, also told them that you must believe upon the One who is coming after me. Verse 7, After me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit now let me just say something about that section and then we're going to move quickly to the baptism and I'm, I want to do the same thing with each of these three things John the forerunner the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus what was the purpose of John's ministry what was John really doing he say, well he was preparing the way for the, for the Messiah and that's true and that's where we have to begin in answering the question, because when a great king is going to come, someone should lead the way and prepare the way. I remember when um, a president that we uh, had very little respect for visited Owensboro, Kentucky. And, and there was a rumor that he was going to be uh, eating at Moonlight Barbecue. And being friends with one of the owners, I called him and said, Uh, Is is the big dog going to be there today? And he said, Ted, I can only tell you this. Be here by 11 (laughs) o'clock. I barely got in. 50 or 60 state police cars, secret service people, bomb-sniffing dogs, secret service agents with wands got in there, locked down, nobody could get out, dogs came through and eventually the president made it there and yes I met him and even though I did not respect him I wanted to speak to him and you know what my goal was my goal was to say Mr. President I'm a pastor and I want you to know that I'm praying for you and if there's any way that I could ever be of help to you I would love to I think that probably would have been better than to say Mr. President Um, you need to repent. Now, how can I say that in light of what we're looking at? Because I believe that in that case, I was trying to get... It didn't work. Let's get off of that story, okay? Um, We met, couldn't talk, but i tell you something. When a president or a king makes an appearance somewhere, you cannot believe the preparation that goes into it. All of the preparation. The things they fly in. Well, the greatest King of all is about to come on the scene. He's been prophesied since the dawn of creation. I made reference to the prophecy in Genesis 3. And all through the Old Testament, the people of God were told that someday the final prophet, priest, and king would come. The Messiah would come. And now as the eleventh hour draws nigh, it's only right that there be a herald, that there be a forerunner, that there be somebody out there to say, He's almost here! Be ready! And for you to be ready for this King, you need to repent. Because He is a holy King. And you cannot enter into His kingdom apart from forgiveness of sins. And so, John was preparing the way. And he was calling people to repentance and to faith. So that's the primary purpose of this. And he speaks, doesn't he, wonderfully of how majestic the one who was coming was. And we see the humility of John the Baptist here. Isn't this beautiful that John, um, he was a famous man. Would pride get to you if people by the thousands started coming out in the middle of the wilderness to hear you? The wilderness? But all along John's attitude was, He must increase, I must decrease. John, are you the Christ? No, 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 far be that from the truth. Let me tell you who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm saying, prepare for Him. I'm not the Christ. In fact, I have to tell you that He is so mighty and He is so majestic that I don't even find myself worthy to stoop down and to take a leather strap and untie His shoes. Disciples do almost anything for their masters. Servants do do anything for their masters. John says I'm less than a servant. I'm not even worthy to untie His shoes. He's mightier than I. He's more majestic than I am. And by the way, let's put this baptism thing in perspective. Yes, I baptize with water. It is symbolic of cleansing and cutting with sin. But when He comes, He is going to baptize you with the holy spirit this is god and i believe that this prophecy concerning christ baptizing with the holy spirit refers primarily to what our savior did on the day of pentecost he received from the father the promise of the spirit and poured it out and the reason i say that is because that's what acts chapter one says it quotes this very passage But in a very personal way, dear people, it is the Holy Spirit who baptizes individual sinners into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians teaches that. That we have all been, if we are true Christians, we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body. And I want to say to you this morning that you will not get to heaven and you will never be forgiven if the Holy Spirit does not baptize you into the body of Christ, if He does not regenerate you, if He does not cause you to be born again, if He does not break your heart for sin in such a way that you are willing to stand in a tank like the one behind me and say, the old me is gone and dead. So John is preparing the way for the Messiah. And he's a preacher of repentance and faith. And I just want to say this and I'm moving on. There's something very regulative about the ministry of John the Baptist. There are things that are not regulative. There are things that are not to be duplicated. We'd be a fool to try to make such a case that everything John did we should do and do for the same. No, no, no. But here is what is normative. Sinners must repent and believe upon Christ in order to have remission of sins. Sinners must experience a work of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. And I want to say to all of you that if you haven't yet made your break with sin out of a truly broken heart and fled to the Lord Jesus Christ, Your sins still hover over your head and so does the wrath of God and there's no remission for you until such time. And I plead with you, repent today. Believe today. And as a church, we must always insist on what John insisted. We must be bold like John. We need to be able to say to people, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He may have been referring more specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem, but in a sense that is a type of the final destruction of God that will come upon the unbelieving world. And we too need to warn sinners to flee from the wrath to come. And we too have to distinguish between those who make a shallow, superficial profession and those who are real. And we too need to look for the evidence of faith and repentance. He say, well, John, you were so judgmental. How dare you tell people that you can't baptize them? It's not your business to look into their lives and decide whether they're genuine or not. Well, you take that up with John. Jesus gave him the highest commendation that could ever be given a man. He was faithful. He was a bold man. I believe he was a loving man. He loved the souls of his hearers so much that he had to tell them the truth. Later we read of him going to Herod and saying to Herod the king, Herod it isn't lawful for you to have that woman he had his brother's wife Herodias how much did that cost John the Baptist only his head only his head we must be bold and faithful in the proclamation of the whole counsel of God now More briefly, the baptism. We see it in verses 9 and 11. Let's read it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We have a fuller account of this in Matthew three thirteen through 17 and again in Luke, from which Zach read this morning. Did any of you notice that as he was coming up out of the water, it says he was praying? That's why the synoptics are helpful. That is, Matthew and Luke joined with Mark. Those three Gospels are called the synoptics, because synoptic means similar. Okay, Big word, synoptic, means similar. Those three Gospels. So when you want the whole composite, read all three of them. But this is an amazing thing. Why would Jesus be baptized? If, if you're right, Pastor Ted, that baptism, among other things, uh, was symbolized cleansing and a cutting away from sin, and it was, and Christian baptism is that plus. Christian baptism is symbolizing death, burial, and resurrection with the Lord Jesus Christ, but it still symbolizes a cleansing from sin, and if that's what John's baptism why would Jesus go into the River Jordan and say, I need to be baptized by you? You know that Matthew's account says, no, 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 I can't do that. You should be baptizing me, Jesus. I can't baptize you. And Jesus said, allow it for now in this way. <coughs> excuse me. We will be fulfilling righteousness. But that's sort of abstract too, isn't it? Does that really totally help you understand why Jesus was baptized? Here's what I think we need to appreciate. The moment Jesus took on flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't take on sin. He took on human nature. The moment Jesus took on our human nature, He began to identify with us. That's why we speak of His incarnation as the ultimate contextualization. He came into our context. He so identified with us that he took upon himself our human nature and its frailties, and that's why he got tired, and that's why Jesus got colds, and that's why Jesus had toothaches, and that's why Jesus fell asleep in the stern of a boat. because He so identified with us. And we believe that the primary purpose of that baptism was for Jesus to say to the whole world, I have come to save a people, and I'm going to identify with them and their sinfulness from the very beginning of my ministry. No. I don't believe that the sins of the world were imputed to Jesus at that time. The sins of the world were imputed to Jesus when He was on the cross. I suspect that if they had been imputed to Him at that time, God would have had to have killed Him and turned His back then. But what Jesus was saying is, I am identifying with sinful human beings. I am going to take their sins upon Me. And I am going to cleanse them in my life and in my death and in my ministry. And so he is baptized symbolically to demonstrate how intimately he was going to identify with us. So when you think of Jesus being baptized, just say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. And then say, Jesus, Thank you for so identifying with me that you took my sins upon yourself and you bore them on the cross and endured the wrath of God and symbolized the whole thing from the beginning of your ministry. And you declared to the world that I have come to be the sinner's substitute. That's what it symbolized. And what an amazing thing. Again, I think you should read the parallel accounts, and that would be a good Lord's Day activity. Go to Matthew 3, go to Luke 3, and see how wonderful it was. And at the end of the baptism, the heavens opened up, and there were two amazing affirmations uh, from God. One, well, really three. The heavens were opened in some kind of a way, and Jesus must have seen something wonderful, and maybe others did. But the first thing that happens is a dove descends, and it's actually the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. I don't believe that the Spirit came down looking like a dove. I personally believe a real dove came down, which was designed to demonstrate the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus in some very, very special way. And the Bible says that it, that it, that it rested upon him. It didn't just touch him and fly away. And there's, there's great mystery and there's great glory in this because our Savior, before He enters upon this great work of redemption, to be for us our prophet, our priest, and our king, needed to be anointed by God in a very wonderful and powerful way. And that anointing had a profound impact upon His ministry. He didn't just rely upon the fact that His divine nature was joined to His human nature the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, came down to strengthen that human nature, to do what He was called to do, and to do what he was going to be called to do in only just a few minutes. Because in only a few minutes, the same Spirit who descended upon Him impelled Him, impelled Him to go into the wilderness for 40 days and to be tempted of the devil. That's only the beginning of how the Holy Spirit upheld Him throughout the entirety of His ministry and even on the cross. He was being anointed for His work as prophet, priest, and king. And then there were those amazing words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father spoke encouragement to Him. In fact, He said, You are, are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He spoke directly to His Son. And so that baptism is glorious for us, a Savior who identifies with our sinfulness and eventually literally takes those sins upon Himself and the punishment that was due to them and absorbs the wrath of God for us. I'm just going to say this, if the Lord Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to strengthen Him for His life and ministry, who do we think we are to try to live without the help and the blessing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit? We need to pray to the Holy Spirit frequently throughout every day of our lives for His special help. Well, finally, I want you just to notice with me uh, his temptation. Again, this is a brief account. It's, it's Markan. It's typical of Mark. It says in verse 12, the Spirit immediately. See that word? We already saw it in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately. And we see it now in verse 12, immediately. And we see it later in verse 18, and we see it in verse 20, and we see it in verse 21, and we see it in verse 23, and we see it in verse 29, 42 times. See how quickly moving this docudrama is. Immediately after his baptism... The Spirit drove him. It's a strong word. It impelled him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted of or by Satan. And he was with wild animals. Only Mark makes that observation. And the angels were ministering, ministering to him. This was a 40-day trial, and it was preparing him for further ministry. And it was proving to the whole world that he was going to be a suitable Savior because there was no sin in him. Now, some have wondered if in fact he was tempted for all 40 days. What does your text say? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. It's debatable. Luke also leaves the impression that the, that the whole 40 days was a temptation of some sort. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but some of the men that I read and so was so blessed by believe that there was a kind of inward temptation throughout the whole period followed by a very focused, intense outward temptation at the very end. And perhaps the inward temptation revolved around this. oh, what did the Father say? He said, You are My Son in whom I am, with whom I am well pleased. Oh, really? Really? This is what a father does to his son? And how that whole idea intensified in perhaps the outward temptations that were threefold recorded in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. He was hungry at the end. Apparently he wasn't throughout most of the time. God supernaturally sustained him. And by the way, the angels were apparently ministering to him throughout this period of time too. They didn't just minister to him at the end. But at the end, when it becomes intense, the devil says, Is this the way a father treats his son? You're hungry. Does a father cause his son to be born in a barn, in a stable? Does a father make his son live in a no-count town like Nazareth and be in a relatively poor family and to be a carpenter? Does a father treat his son this way? Make you stay out here for 40 days and not have anything to eat? Why don't you make those stones bread if you really are the Son of God, if He really is your Father? Surely He'll prove His love by you commanding the stones to become bread. Do it! And he appeals to Jesus, and you know what happened. Jesus answers with Scripture, and then there was the second one. He takes them to a pinnacle of a temple and says, why don't you cast yourself down and see if the angels will be good on their promise according to the Psalms. And, and then later he takes him to a high place where he sees all of the kingdoms of the world, and he tells him, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these things. And you know that Jesus answered the devil in all three occasions with Scripture. And though he was outwardly physically weak, Our Savior, I underscore, our Savior did not sin. He didn't sin in word, thought, and deed. And how significant was that? Well, it's so significant that if He had sinned in the slightest way, none of us would be sitting here today, at least not as Christians professing that we have a Savior, a sinless Savior who could make a perfect atonement for us. We wouldn't be here. It's essential. So the purpose of this temptation was to prepare him for a whole ministry of depending upon the Holy Spirit in keeping himself pure. And now we have a Savior to believe upon. I need to quit. Those are the first three things that we see. Mark says so, that's where I want to start my gospel. God called Matthew to start in a different place than Luke and John, but I just want to start with John the Baptist. He was prophesied in, by the way, the first quote comes actually from Malachi there in verse 2, and the second one comes from Isaiah. And that's a common procedure in Scripture where the quote is attributed to one and not necessarily both. Mark says that's where I want to start. I want to start with the man who prepared the way. And I want you to see that, as soon as he arrived, he identified with us in his baptism, and he proved for us that he was going to be a sinless, spotless lamb. That's where Mark begins. And I want to conclude with this final quote from one of the older writers. Uh, he just takes off on the first three word, or the first few words of this. Uh, The Gospel, let's see, according, you read it exactly, I want you to notice the little preposition, the, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus his human name, Christ his messianic title, prophet, priest, and king, the Son of God, the beginning of the Gospel, and this is what the writer says, and with this I conclude. This message is emphatically the good news. It is the tidings which men most of all need. It stands alone. There is no other like it. If this be not the glad tidings of great joy for the world, then there are none. Let no false liberality lead us to lose sight of the exclusive claims which are made in this phrase for the set of facts, the narrative of which constitutes the gospel. The life and death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world, His resurrection and continuous life for the saving of the world. These are the truths without which there can be no gospel. They must be apprehended. They may be apprehended in different ways. Set forth in different perspectives proclaimed in different dialects, explained in different fashions, associated with different accompaniments, drawn out into different consequences. And yet, through all the diversity of tones, the message may be one, sounded on a ram's horn or on a silver trumpet. It may be the same saving and joy-bringing proclamation, and it will be if Christ and His life and death are plainly set forth as the beginning and ending of all. But if there be an omission of that mighty name, or if a Christ be proclaimed without a cross, a salvation without a Savior, or a Savior without a sacrifice, all the adornments of genius and sincerity will not prevent such a half-gospel from falling flat. Its preachers have never been able and never will be able to touch the general heart or to bring good cheer to men. They have always had to complain, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. They cannot get people to be glad over such a message. Only when you speak of a Christ who has died for our sins will you cause the heavy heart of the world to sing with joy. Only that old, old message is the good news which men want. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring Mark to record the the life and death and resurrection and saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that as we think about these things, that our hearts will be filled to overflowing with wonder. Wonder for a Savior who identified with our sinfulness by being baptized, wonder for a Savior who looked the devil squarely in the eyes and resisted his temptations to prove his perfect holiness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being such a Savior. We pray that this gospel will forever be our joy and our delight. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.